Hello, and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, and other experts to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I will be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark groves, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. Returning to the podcast for a consideration of Cormac McCarthy's third novel, Child of God, is Dr. Bill Hardwick, Associate Professor of English at the University of Tennessee. His book, Upon Provincialism, Southern Literature and National Periodical Culture, 1870-1900, was published by University of Virginia Press in 2013. He has edited critical editions of In the Tennessee Mountains by Mary Murphy, also a forthcoming edition of Evelyn Scott's Background in Tennessee, and his co-editor, Susanna Ashton, of Approaches to Teaching the Works of Charles W. Chestnut in the MLA Teaching Series. He has written and published various essays of McCarthy and is currently working on a book-length study of McCarthy's fiction titled, for now, How McCormack Works, McCarthy, Language, and Style. He's also created the website literarynox.com, which presents a rich literary history of the city in which he lives and works, Knoxville, Tennessee. Bill, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here again. It's a real pleasure. So last time out, we talked about how you had first discovered McCarthy, and you talking about you talked, I think, about being in graduate school up in Chicago and stumbling on one of the books. So this time, since you've you've been here before for a change of pace, when did you start teaching him in your role and vocation as a college professor, and what has that experience been like? Um, I think the first time I taught. McCarthy was in 2008. That's when I began teaching an Appalachian literature class um, and something that I've taught probably once a year pretty much since then. And uh, the first book I taught is actually the one we'll be discussing today, Child of God. Good. And I thought when I was introducing it, that's a great way to provide a different take on the conventional stories of Appalachia. You know, you get these stories about the strong families, romanticized view of the landscape, the communal strength of the towns the wholesome independence of the mountaineer, some of these tropes that we become familiar with. And I thought that McCarthy would be a nice way to give something different, that it would be harder to keep those uh, stable in the same way. And I thought that was going along really well until a really smart student raised her hand and asked, why are we reading this? <laughs> you know, at the time I sort of stumbled on a half answer, an academic answer, but then I left the classroom and I thought about it. And I came back to class with another kind of answer, and we had a really nice discussion about the fact that McCarthy believes that just because we don't like something doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And he seems drawn to those subjects. And so we talked about in the class about the value of exploring what we want to repress and whether that can be valuable and what's valuable about it. And I think we came away with the idea that if the book feels exploitative or voyeuristic, then Perhaps McCarthy has failed in on, in that book, and I have failed the class, but I haven't found that to be the case in the um, nearly 20 times I've taught the, the book. Uh, he, the students really respond to it. They are drawn to the storytelling, the questions it poses, um, and the issues it explores. So while looking back on it, I'm sort of surprised I chose Child of God as the first one. It actually has been a stalwart, and students really, really seem to enjoy it, if enjoyment is the right word. You know, we are we are in a weird time in our culture where students feel more empowered to challenge faculty than they've ever felt before. You know, I guess you could say in the 60s, there's a similar thing going on. And sometimes this is kind of a good thing. And a lot of times 
when you're the person getting challenged, it's not such a good thing. You end up spending some valuable class time defending what seem to be kind of standard choices. But I guess it's good in that it makes us think about why we do the things we do. And we're not just, you know, repeating a syllabus we learned in graduate school mm-hmm. or something like that. And it also made me realize that I had been taking a sort of purely academic and intellectual approach to a book about um, sexual violation, uh, murder, necrophilia, and that that required a different sort of conversation uh, before we get into that intellectual academic approach, I think. Well, that's a very good point. So can you tell us a little bit about where McCarthy is in his career leading up to publishing Child of God? He had, we know his first novel is Orchard Keeper, which wins lots of praise and is well-reviewed and gets the attention of some major players and wins him some awards. I guess I said that already. And then the second novel is Outer Dark, which I'm sure was a bit more of a challenge for some of the reasons we've just been discussing with readers, but also is pretty well received. So uh, this novel was published in 1973. So what what's going on in McCarthy's life at this time? And what is the you know, general situation around him when he publishes this book? Well, um, you've sort of talked about some of the um, some of the arc of his career, and I think that's one place to start is that this is his third novel right before Sutri in 1979, um, and the third of a f- what is often known as his four books of his Tennessee period from 1965 to 1979. So I think that's important. Another thing that I think is going on is even though he isn't a household name at this point and isn't maybe uh, well-known to the average reader, the non-McCarthy fan, um, he is getting increasing attention by people in literary circles. So during the 1960s, he won a number of prestigious awards, the Ingram Merrill Foundation, American Academy of Arts and Letters, William Faulkner Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, and the Guggenheim Fellowship. So, right. And these are all sort of leading up to Child of God. So even though he hasn't yet been, I think, seen nationally as one of our most important writers, um, people are t- taking notice and seeing him as a writer to pay attention to. Yeah, he went to MacArthur Grant in 1981. So he's clearly, in the years following this and following Sutri, he's he's moving into the national spotlight. And he's married to uh, Anne Delisle during his time still? Right? He is, yep, that's correct. And that's his second marriage following uh, the first one, which I guess, and this this was the one that lasted for quite a while, I think. And, and they seem to have some some pretty good times together before things eventually you know fall apart there. So I have to say, you're talking about the students having a, issues with the novel, but you winning them over. I have to tell you my own personal story. I'd love to hear it. About this. When I first met my mother-in-law, this would have been 1998, 99, somewhere in there. She is from Demopolis, Alabama. She has a very proper uh, demeanor and decorum. Her voice and accent are exactly the kind of old school, high Southern accent that people from Hollywood try to make people learn when they're playing Southern parts, which is really only spoken in certain parts of Georgia, South Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi. And you only hear it with certain people of certain social classes. It's not necessarily a high class thing so much as brought up in a certain way kind of thing. So my mother-in-law has that voice, you know, but Mm -hmm. my, her kids make fun of her for saying often instead of orphan, (laughs) but 
she uh, when she heard that I had written and worked with Faulkner, she was somewhat suspicious of me because in her mind, Faulkner didn't like the South. And then that was, of course, a very complicated conversation to have with her. And then I told her I'd been really interested in and working with Cormac McCarthy. And she just immediately raised an eyebrow and she had gone to a summer workshop for for non-traditional, not in a rather kind of students, really more for parents of students, I guess, that they have at University of the South in Swanee, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And she had taken a class in Southern literature and a professor had chosen to have these various readers of retired age as their first exposure to Cormac McCarthy. He chose to teach them Child of God. And my mother-in-law was very much not pleased and not impressed. And I've had to do quite a bit of convincing with her. I still don't think she's tried anything else by McCarthy. The necrophilia in the book was just a little too much. And that's a little bit of a spoiler warning folks (laughs) for what's coming up. Absolutely. Yeah. Part of the interesting thing about this book is people did not know how to receive it. And part of that is a book about um, serial killing and necrophilia for sure. But I think it's also the the kind of stylized way that he went about it is really unsettling. So he has all this, um, you know, plot about really grisly things, but then the way he describes it is often ways that we don't know quite what to do with Mm. it, you know? So for example, the first scene of, necrophilia he has found in the early in the book he's found um a couple of a couple who's uh naked in the backseat of their car and have died from carbon monoxide poisoning so he stumbles upon this scene of already having uh two dead bodies and at first he's just rifling through the car to see if he can get some um you know money he finds some liquor and just to see what he can take from there because he's been kicked out of his home and then um he later then comes back to the car and what sort of starts his descent is he decides to uh, violate the body, the woman's mm. body there. And so we're sort of um, a very uneasy scene, but then the way it's described by McCarthy is he described it as a crazed gymnast laboring over a cold corpse. Mm. So whatever we're doing in that scene and reading about this ultimate violation, the idea of a crazed gymnast laboring over a corpse is almost hard to imagine. So it almost, takes us out of the immediacy of thing and puts some distance as we try to even envision what right. that weird metaphor is. And there's a lot of moments in that where his narration seems to throw people for a loop. Some of the early reviews felt that it was losing its humanity or too stylized. But I do think that that's one of the, the key components of it is this really unusual description of fairly grisly you know for for such a grisly topic there's not that many grisly scenes in the book actually i don't know if you saw in 19 i'm sorry in 2013 james franco directed i was going to ask you about it yeah cinematic version and that to me was really unsuccessful and and horrible or horrific because we had to actually watch lester do all these things and if you go back and look in the book although there are murders and necrophilia and all that kind of stuff. Very rarely do we get the 
the sort of grisly details of that. So um, it sort of brings us out of that immediacy in a way. Yeah. The film can't avoid. When I read that Franco was making it and a lot of people, there, there are new problems, of course, uh, with his reputation that we won't go into here. Leaving that aside for the moment, a lot of people have always had a lot of problems with Franco and I haven't shared them because to my mind, he was the only person involved in Hollywood who was literate, who actually read literary novels, who cared about, Mm-hmm. Faulkner and McCarthy and people like that. But on the other hand, I thought of all the books to adapt, this is the one you choose. <laughs> and yeah. for exactly, I think I disagree with Cormac, who always has said any book can be made into a movie. And of course, the answer is can it be made into a movie that completely respects its source material and conveys the sense of the source material, meaning it doesn't have to be a word for word adaptation. It doesn't have to be line for line or perfect scene for scene, but does it have respect for the source material and can it really convey the same feeling and essence? So you think of a film like Maltese Falcon, which is a perfect film adaptation of that novel by Hammett, or one like To Kill a Mockingbird, which actually takes quite a few liberties and changes things quite a bit, but probably improves on that novel in its film adaptation. So since we started going into what happens in the book, why don't you give us a brief overview of the plot? And here I'll remind our listeners that this is not a book review podcast. It is a mm-hmm. author discussion. And unfortunately, that does mean there are, well, sometimes be spoilers. And we've already given a little bit of a spoiler, I guess. There, there will be spoilers. So if you have not read Child of God and you are more concerned about the plot, then perhaps go out and read it real fast and come back and listen. But tell us, Bill, should we be concerned about the plot? And could you give us a brief overview of that plot? <laughs> Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. Well, I guess I will say we should be concerned or else my overview is pointless. But, it, but I think the the interesting thing is that it's not really – as much as the book is about these sort of transgressions, I don't think that the plot is where the book's um, emphasis or power lays. Maybe I'll just start a little bit about the way he sets up the book. Um, I think he in some ways sets up the central concerns of the book in the opening two paragraphs. Uh, The first paragraph begins, describes what seems to be a fun loving rambunctious group of people, including musicians traveling by truck and car across the hillside. In the early morning, uh, McCarthy describes it as they came like a caravan of carnival folk. So at this point, they feels, you know, sort of like this carefree excursion. Everybody's chatting, having a good time. But then in the second paragraph, he introduces a man who turns out to be our central character, Lester Ballard, and who is witnessing this carnival atmosphere. And the description we get of Lester is to watch these things issuing from an otherwise mute pastoral morning is a man at the barn door. He is small, unclean, unshaven. 
as it turns out, these merry travelers are actually coming out to Lester's home as part of the auctioning off of his home due to a bank foreclosure. And so as such, these two paragraphs outline the satisfied, carefree community and the dispossessed uh. Lester Ballard, which sort of enacts the central tensions of the novels of the novel, which I'd say are um, Lester's relationship to the community and his isolation from it. And as well as his lack of a home, he is dispossessed. He is homeless by this point. So after that, he becomes a wanderer. He is going around the hills, meeting lots of um, various colorful characters. And then in the part that I already discussed, I think the turning point is when he sort of innocently stumbles upon the two dead bodies. Mm -hmm. But then that starts, he violates the woman's body, and then he takes the woman's body back to an abandoned cabin and sets up this sort of like domestic space (laughs) for him and the body almost becomes the home that he has lost and that he's been searching for. Then after that, the violence escalates. I won't go into all the details. It escalates until he eventually gets to a, like a breaking point and goes to a County hospital and says, I belong here. So mm-hmm. after which the community finds the body of what turns out to be seven women who are hidden in caves um, and sort of interestingly were described as arranged on stone ledges in the attitudes of repose. Right. So it's like this peaceful vision of a really grisly scene. But I think part of the reason I don't feel plot summary of this kind ruins the book is, is that for all the salacious material, the book isn't really understood by its plot. Right. Very early on, Vereen Bell pointed out that you could find a long, short story that had a more involved and more complicated plot. So I think what is interesting to me is part of what I talked about again is already is McCarthy's treatment of the material in a way that it weirdly distances us from the horrific acts. So then we both have to deal with the fact of the plot, but even then also deal with how we're forced to think about it through McCarthy's narration. You've told us it's in Appalachia, but I think when and where exactly is it? Because I, I think it's a little more, unlike Outer Dark, which is in a strange southern melange of, you know, all southern locales kind of rolled into one weird novel. Uh, this one's very specific, right? In, in terms of its setting? It is. Yeah, it, it is um, very locatable in Sevier County, Tennessee in the Wares Valley for people who know that it's sort of, there's two gateways into the Smoky National Park, one in Sevier County, which is sort of near Pigeon Forge, although that's not mentioned in here. And then the other one is Townsend. There's a connector road and it's right sort of in the middle of there. So it is in the mountains. um, And he goes back between those two counties. You know, some people have said that this is based off of an actual murder in Severe County. Um, and right. I think that at least the first place I saw that was in um, Woodward's 1992 uh, essay in the interview and essay in the New York Times called Cormac McCarthy's Venomous Fiction. He suggests that. Um, but I think a lot of people have had a hard time substantiating that. And that um, I think some people feel that that's probably not the case. There's no evidence that exists. And folks have looked. I'm sort of inclined to believe that if Diane Luce can't find any record of it, it probably doesn't exist (laughs) because she's very thorough about that. So that's perhaps not an actual murder in that kind. But I do think a lot of people see some antecedents in some actual cases that are happening around the U.S. regarding sexual deviancy and serial killing. 
Um, two that again, loose mentions are James Blevins, which was an actual case in 1963 yes. in North Georgia, where he spied um, and was accused of murdering um, women. And then most famously, Ed Gein, who was a sort of came into attention in the ni- late 1950s, who killed a lot of people, used their skin and body features and their hair to make masks and stuff. And that second one, I believe, is the antecedent to both Robert Block's novel Psycho, later famously filmed by Hitchcock, Yep, and also the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? Aren't they both the film? Aren't they both based on him somewhat? I had heard for sure Psycho, and then I'd also heard Silence ah, of the Lambs. Well, of uh, so, yeah, I guess anytime you're looking for a grisly serial killer, you right. might look into that one. Yeah, so I think that a lot of that stuff is really uh, in the um, public mind at this time period um, in the sixties and early seventies. Um, and so I think, well, especially after the Manson murders, I think everyone is sure. Yeah, absolutely. Serial killers or mass murders or I don't know. It seems to be one of our modern malaises, right? That mm-hmm. our first known serial killer is right. At the turn of the century of Jack DeRipper over in Bretton and things just get worse. And I think maybe another just, aspect of that is I think there's also a little bit of a shift at this time period that this book emerges about how people are thinking about serial killers. So, yeah. I mean, people have been exploring serial killers since Jack the Ripper, as you mentioned, but um, this book was released one year before the FBI's behavioral science unit was founded. Huh. And if you've seen Mindhunter, the show that's based on that. Right, right. But that so that precedes that a little bit, but they're also building off a psychology that's exploring serial killers and deviant sexuality in a different way, you know. And I think the shift is from trying to figure out the routines of serial killers to catch them versus trying to really understand the human emotions and base sort of impulses that leads to the monstrous behavior in order to track and maybe even prevent. Killer. So I think that look into a character like Lester Ballard makes some sense in terms of what's going on culturally as well. Are we given any clear indication of the year the novel is set? In my mind, it's sometime in the 50s, but I don't know if that's actually accurate or not. Yeah, I don't think there's an exact one. I know Diane Luce has done some tracing and suggesting it may have been somewhere around there. If you want to tie specific historical events um, there was a major flood in Sevierville in 1957, which is, um, there's a major flood in this book. So he right. might be. So that may be what the the thing that shows kind of when it's set. And that would have been the guess. Well, on the description of the car, the turtle feels, feels very much that for that time period as well. It does. When we think of, we've talked a bit on this podcast, you and I have, but also some of the other guests about the influence of Faulkner on McCarthy's early work. And in my mind, along with The Orchard Keeper, this is the book where I see it the most. And I wonder if part of that is because one of Faulkner's most notorious short stories is A Rose for Emily. Sure. That short story is, uh, again, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't had freshman English in college yet, <laughs> is about necrophilia. It, you know, Emily is courted for a while by Homer Barron, and it seems likely he's going to move on down the line, and she doesn't give him that option and retains him in her bedside for many, many years. And there's some reason to believe when we find a single 
you know, strand of iron gray hair in a pillow next to her that perhaps necrophilia has occurred as well as just sleeping beside each other. And metaphorically, of course, it means the same thing. The people are sleeping with the dead. And so we had this notion of the South trying to hold on to the dead past and not relinquishing what has gone before. But this novel doesn't seem to hit allegory nearly as heavy in such a heavy handed way as Rose for Emily does, where it's pretty straightforward. So is there any kind of symbolic or metaphorical reason for the necrophilia in the book? Or is it simply a a way to be just as he does without a dark to really put the grotesque in the Southern grotesque or, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know if there's um, some people you could maybe argue for certain kinds of allegory, but I, I agree that it's hard to see an allegory about the past. Exactly. You know, you could see a sort of more localized allegory of Lester's desire for home for family. And this becomes his twisted family as he keeps collecting and for maybe intimacy, um, you know, both uh, necrophilia, but then also he um, spends time cuddling with the bodies too. So a sort of dressing them up and yeah, and arranging them in front of the fire and looking at them from outside the cabin. Yes. So there's a desire for the domestic space that is emphasized by his being kicked out of his uh, his family home. But also, you learn early on in the book, and you don't know quite what to do with this very early on, but through these first person stories, we learned that he, his father hanged himself in the barn. Lester is the one who saw that body. If you go back and look at the second page of the book, there's a description of a rope hanging from the barn rafters. And so I think we're supposed to see that as probably the rope that his dad hanged himself with. So we have this constant reminder for him. His mother ran away when he's a very young kid too. So a desire for family becomes twisted um but also pretty persistent so there's that you know i don't know that he's trying to hold on to this to the old south or old ways some people have argued that lester ballard is a character who's sort of identified with older ways that are failing to um, adapt to modern society so he's trying to live in a way that is impossible these days and you could point to his obsession with his rifle that almost feels like yes. frontier obsession rather than, you know, modern violence obsession. So it feels like sort of out of um, as I lay dying and the obsession with the rifle or I mean with the horse, he has the same right about buying the horse. It sounds sort of reminiscent of that with the way he buys his gun. Well, there, there's certainly something about the Appalachian, frontiersmen reaching all the way back to Daniel Boone and uh, through that lineage to Davy Crockett, we have the, the rifleman sure, yeah, who shows his power and puissance and abilities because of his abilities with, you know, uh, with the rifle. And as you can, t- of course, the use of weaponry and McCarthy is often very loaded and I've, I've written on it in other places, you know, Jay Ellis has that book, no place for home, mm-hmm. uh, spatial constraint and character flight in the novels of Cormac McCarthy. And I think he has a pretty good section just on what you're saying here about Lester creating these homes and home spaces and domestic locations again and again as a way of, of leading to his just not always feeling isolated. What about the, uh, what are some of the other uh, major themes and ideas? What about the title itself in the novel, The Child of God? The title shows up on the second page of the book, that second paragraph I mentioned, um, and it it is 
right after the part I read about this small, unclean, unshaven person at the door watching that carnival, it says a child, so it's describing Lester, and it says a child of God, much like yourself, perhaps. And at this, oh, that's interesting. And then at this point, um, I think we're willing to go with that. We don't know anything about Lester, and so it sort of suggests us to think about how we might be less like Lester or how Lester might be like us. You know, there's, I think you could do some readings of parables and biblical meaning, but I also think just that sort of Southern saying of a child of God, meaning a human part of the human community. And so I think we are um, comfortable with that at the beginning of the book, but then as the book goes on, it becomes harder and harder to reconcile how he's like us and how he's like a child of God. So how he's part of the human community. And I think that's one of the themes that McCarthy really wants to explore is for us to think about how, not only like how is Lester like us, but maybe how are we like Lester even in his worst moments, you know? So I think Hmm. some, I think some of the early reviews suggested that McCarthy wanted to create a sentimental story where Lester is the victim, where he's this innocent person who's been railroaded by society and the sheriff. Um, There might be some elements to that, but I think it's much closer to say that he's not trying to say, Lester's like us and that he's innocent, but to think like how we are like Lester in his worst moments, I guess I already said that. And that goes back to McCarthy's idea that violence and murder, but then I think he would also say depravity are parts of human experience going all the way back. Yes. And I think this book is really interested in how societies deal with that, how they repress that, how they ostracize that. You know, so I think the feeling is that the sort of tendency for people like Lester to say, no, he's not a human, he's a monster. And this book sort of putting him as, right. no, this monstrous behavior needs to be reconciled a part of what it means to be human, I think McCarthy might say. The first person narratives in this book are fascinating for Cormacians because it is the only time other than free and direct discourse where, you know, in third person, we slip into a little bit of first person narration or stream of consciousness or what have you, and then slip back out of it again. This is the only time we actually have real first person narratives in McCarthy. I guess you have the little interchapter sections with with Bell and mm-hmm. No Country for Old Men and the prologue of that novel. But but this is the only one that, other than that, seems to have it much. Uh, and to me, it's very Faulknerian because certainly the whole point of its use in Azalea Dying, where I want to say we have something like 17 different narrators, is that we that some part of what that novel is about is how we are seen, how we see, how we perceive, all the focus on Darl's mm-hmm. second sight in that book and his ability to know things he's not supposed to know, and how others are bothered by that notion from, from outside. And I wonder if here we are just seeing who Lester is in his mind and his experiences you know, it was one thing and then how society, you know, places him and, and pigeonholes him, establishes him is a, is another frame of reference altogether as well, which I guess is something you've kind of already said. Well, I think what's interesting about that is the way that McCarthy chooses to structure that because all those first person accounts, these stories that most of which are about Lester, often his violence, his detachment from society, his antisocial behavior, um, and just he doesn't seem quote unquote quite right. But those all come in the first part of the book. There's three parts of this book, and they disappear right. by somewhere around page 60 or something like that. But, and we, but we don't know quite what to do with those as we're reading through the book because Lester hasn't really done anything hmm. 
to make sense of these stories. So then it, I think we later on figure out that these first person accounts are the stories that the community later tells to make sense of Lester. Right. Um, but we don't have the details as we're reading it chronologically or, you know, through the book to understand what it is they're um, looking back. So when you go back and look at it, I think, yeah, that's the way they mythologize how this monster came to come out of our community. Cause you know, it couldn't just be a normal guy who goes yeah. horrible. You know, it must be something monstrous to start with. Yeah. Or else I think the extension, any of us could do that. So there has to be, Right. Some way to rationalize it as a not us. There's a really weird scene in the book where he moves at some point from being a happenstance necrophiliac to creating bodies mm-hmm. for necrophilia. And, you know, if we say it to be charitably and for family. And one of the things that's so strange, because, of course, you cannot speak of the novel and not talk about depravity and sexual violence when he kidnaps the girl later in the book he could and again it's a horrific thing to discuss but let's let's face it straightforwardly he could you know he's got her at gunpoint she's isolated or her boyfriend is dead he could rape her he doesn't do that he has to kill her first yeah so his depravity is to such a point it never occurs to him to commit this one outrageous horrible act of sexual violence uh, instead, she she has to be dead because he's so incapable of reaching out mm-hmm. to to a living person in some way or another. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the the things we see in this book is all the women in the book who are alive have power over Lester, and he feels helpless. And this starts off very early. He just can't interact with them. He can't keep up with the conversation. He's embarrassed. Um, this comes from Rubel's daughter who sexually teases him early on in a way that he is just flustered unnamed woman uh, with the baby, the woman he fights with in the woods employee at the shop when he's buying lingerie for the bodies, right? The women, even the women at the, uh, the County fair are just sort of turning their shoulder. So he is sort of helpless in the face of live women. So I think that makes some sense that he grasps this through his experience with dead women. There's this one point when actually right after the the part I read about the crazed gymnast, where I think it's a sentence right after that, the line is uh, talking about Lester and the, the dead body he said he whispered into that waxen ear, everything he thought of saying to a woman. Wow. And so like, that's the time where he can, but it's also kind of interesting because we don't know, exactly what he would say. Maybe this is a moment where he can show some vulnerability and really speak to what he really wants to say. And um, it's a beautiful thing, but it also everything he says to live women is misogynistic and offensive and violent. And it's quite possible it would be the same in thing. that line. Yeah. So to go back to your point about the woman who he captures um, and doesn't rape. So there's the possibility of him yeah, wanting intimacy and maybe all that kind of stuff. But then I think if that's also the scene where he forgets something and has to run back to the car. Right. And when he comes back, he howls sort of animal-like, like he does a lot of times because the body's cold. So there's right. a little bit of McCarthy's not going to let us just say, oh, he just wants companionship. There's a sort of right. a gross factor of uh, him wanting a warm body there too. So People have a tendency to want someone in their books to be the good guy or the bad guy or the one who's not quite so bad. And 
and McCarthy is an equal opportunity. Um, uh, uh, I guess I would say he he will apply damnation with equal opportunity. Yeah. You know, no one exactly comes off. He'll have some characters who are a little more positive than the others, but in the overall human context, not so much. So the kid is not as bad as the rest of the filibuster in Blood Meridian, but compared to many people, he's still pretty, pretty awful. Yeah. You can't find the good guys in his books, but you can find the bad guys a lot of times. Yeah. Right. Right. And sometimes you can find the less bad guys. And of course that starts changing with the border trilogy Mm -hmm. a bit. It does. I guess where it's a little divided in that way. So you said before that some of the reviewers thought he was trying to sentimentalize, you know, Lester as a sign of Appalachia being done wrong and rooting for him. Were there any other things that showed up in reviews that were interesting to you? Well, I mean, you've mentioned that I think in a couple of the early ones, he still is compared with Faulkner. I think this maybe continues through mm. Sutri and then less after that. One interesting one by Robert Coles, I believe was in the New Yorker. He said that it might take a while for American audiences to find their way to McCarthy because he's so hard to digest. And he says like Faulkner that you don't know quite what you were getting with a Faulkner novel, particularly in that really prolific period in the twenties and early thirties. And Stephen Fry has written about how, about how accurate of a prediction that really was that maybe part of what we had to do is as a society to figure out what's going on with McCarthy. So um, one of the things that, interested me about the reviews is just how contradictory they were, even about the basic, <laughs> is it um, a tragic unflinching look at reality or is it a sentimental and morose? And it seems like people can't agree on what's even the tone of the book or what we should be paying attention to. Um, you know, a very early description by Vereen Bell talked about all the extraneous material that is in the book. So there's all the stuff that seems to disrupt the plot because we get these stories that don't seem to be on point, these uh, anecdotes that don't really relate. Um, And I think that might be part of it is just what do you do when there's this very clear through line about depravity, but then you have all this other stuff going on that seems to be as central to the book, but it doesn't seem central to the plot necessarily. Well, you you think of the scene where the sheriff and the deputy during the flood are rowing in the boat with the elderly man who tells him about a former, I think, I guess, famous kind of tough guy deputy who, who scattered the, uh, was it the white caps yeah. mm-hmm. that they're called in there, which is a famous, I guess, um, kind of KKK spinoff kind of yep. group. Um, that were actually existed in East Tennessee. Yeah. Yeah. And how he wouldn't tolerate them and, and, you know, ran them off and went after them and scared them to death. And, and it's funny because you have seen the sheriff as this kind of evil interloper into Lester's life, although a lot of what he suspects Lester doing is, of course, exactly dead accurate. And he is, certainly. Lester is actually, by the latter half of the novel, is actually a threat to people, mm-hmm. uh, to innocent people. So it's it's probably not, I think on rereading, the sheriff is a little less of an antagonist than the bad guys we think he is, maybe on the, on the first time through. And I think another way to think about him that makes him more sympathetic is those conversations between him and the deputy sound a lot to me like bell and some of his deputies in right. country for old men of this just sort of sort of lighthearted back and forth in the middle of a grisly scene but um you know sort of a ironic biting humor and the deputy being sort of younger a little bit more doe-eyed and a little bit 
harder to go with with that. And so I see a little bit, you know, so if we think of Bell as a pretty sympathetic character, if maybe flawed or unable to cope, if we think about hearing the same voice in this character, it maybe gives us a different way to think about him. Hmm. But he certainly is also early on, even before Lester has perpetrated any crimes, he's been accused of a crime of raping a woman, which was not true, or at least not entirely true. He did assault her. The sheriff says, your kind doesn't belong here. You need to get out of town. So there's a little bit of the surveillance and ostracization that, you know, I think that we often see with law enforcement and homeless people more generally. I think at that point, he's registering as a homeless person. So he's a threat because he doesn't have a place to be in society. Probably the two characters, the one character who gets by far the most play in the novel is Lester. And then probably second is the sheriff. We have a couple others who show up a bit. What about Ruble? This Ruble like, what's his role in the novel? Well, Ruble is, um, we meet him mostly in the beginning of the book. He is the dump keeper. And his dump is, you know, there's people and cats running all around and garbage everywhere. And I think when we first see it, it seems a little bit like local color humor, just, you know, sure. the sort of uh, dirty um, mountain South or something like that. Um, and there's a little bit of humor that comes to that. Uh, so we, he has a bunch of girls, a bunch of daughters, and he, um, they're all g- girls, um, women by the time we meet them. And he, we learned that he names all of his children out of an old medical dictionary. <laughs> and the names are like urethra, cerebella, and my favorite hernia Sue. <laughs> so, you know, all this sort of feels part, and then they all become pregnant and all this sort of feels part of uh, sort of local color mythology about the very Erskine Caldwell. Yeah, exactly. But then what happens is we get a scene where he finds one of his daughters having sex in the bushes and he pulls the guy away from the scene and rapes his daughter. Right. And then suddenly we have to deal in a different way with something changes in how we have to interact with him and the scene, obviously. And I think one of the interesting, important parts is that he accepts Lester and Lester accepts him. They're almost sort of like friends. And I don't think this scene would threaten that for either one of them, to be honest with you. So, you know, there's part of what happens in this book is we get this male opinion of and and interaction with women um, that is always toxic, violent and destructive you know there's just a real misogyny in a lot of these male characters and you know nell sullivan's written about the dead girlfriend motif which is um literal in this book um (laughs) um, just sort of men not considering women and not interacting with them in any sort of sustainable way except through violence and sex and those two are usually interconnected in this book and, you know, it's not just those two. You've got John in the jail who talks about right. women are nothing but problem. Uh, and so I think he becomes sort of the fact that he's friendly with Lester. And in some ways, early on, he's the most heinous character in the book, um, I think is telling. You know, one of the things I think that bothered me about the film adaptation, and I think I probably liked it a little more than you did because I had such low expectations. It actually... I was pleasantly surprised with much of it, but the way that the actor Scott Hayes portrays Lester the entire time is from the start 
with the kind of deranged look in his eyes and his mouth held very oddly to give him this strange, I don't know, kind of evil mountain idiot look <laughs> to his face. Yeah. And one of the things that's weird about Lester is although as we see him, he spirals into further and further away from what we would consider appropriate frame of reference, appropriate actions and points of view. At the same time, he does have friends and people he mm-hmm. is acquainted with who'll have conversations with him and chat with him. Now, the other person in the novel who gets a bit of characterization is Greer, and he didn't get a whole lot. Mm-hmm. But what is Greer's role in the novel? Well, I think Greer has maybe the most important on the plot level, um, but he's a minor character. So he's the character who buy ends up buying Lester's house and property. And so then Lester's becomes obsessed with him, starts looking, you know, spying on him and eventually gets in a violent confrontation with him. But I think it's also interesting that Greer is from the very beginning sort of defined as an outsider. One of my favorite uh, lines, just because it seems so appropriate to the voices around this region is one of those first person voices talking about Greer um, and the fact that he bought the Ballard homestead. And he says, John Greer was from up in Granger County, not saying nothing against him, but he was. <laughs> so this sort of like implied insult of somebody just coming from Granger County, which is. He's an outsider yeah. because he's from way over there. Yeah. Right. And so I think that he never is really fully part of society, but then he becomes, yeah, the, the focal point for Lester and his sense of dispossession and unrightful things. So as the, the plot um, escalates. There's a scene where Lester shoots Greer, injuring him, and Greer shoots him, injuring him, and uh, Lester ends up in the hospital. And when Lester is recovering there, the nurse says, don't you want to know? And Lester says, what, if he's dead or alive? and Or if he's alive? And Lester said, is he? And she says, yes, she's alive, but you don't even care if he's dead or alive. And Lester replies, Yes, I do. I wish the son of a bitch was dead. <laughs> so again, uh, the sort of way that even though we could see it from an outside perspective is he is sort of innocently caught up in this. He legally bought the home. Uh, Lester was going to lose it anyway. That's not the way that Lester sees it. And he becomes the example of all these outside forces that are disrupting um, and ruining his life. The forces of capitalism and and who has control of the land and Mm -hmm. are are we moving into you know some kind of suburbia or something like that although that doesn't really rear its head in the novel as such but they do say that part of the attraction of the land is its timber the how much you can get for clear-cutting the the property so there is that Uh, sense of the commercial benefit um that's part of a new economy one of my other issues with the film and I don't, I don't fault the producers because you can only put so much into a film, but it ends with Lester after he's avoided the vigilante group up in the caves and, and mountains, just kind of hoofing it for the territories. And you mm-hmm. don't really know how it's going to end. But of course, in the end of the novel, he turns himself back in. He's, he's kept in the uh, hospital for criminal insane for however many years and after he dies they it it goes into great detail how they you know vivisect the body and and take the brain out and examine it 
in all these things. And what do you think about that whole ending sequence uh, telling us what happens, not only to, to Lester, you know, the narrative suddenly, you know, pulls out to a kind of bird's eye, you know, mile high view and covers mm-hmm. the whole last however many years of his life and what happens after. What do you think about that whole ending sequence? Well, I think you're right to say that it's very different and um, than the movie version because the idea of this terror on the loose um, that could still rampage sort of like Beowulf figure that's in the woods somewhere is not how the book ends at all. Lester says, I'm supposed to be here. So him surrendering to society and feeling like he belongs in the hospital or within the confines of how society defines him. Um, but then I think that last scene is really interesting for a couple of reasons. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read that, the paragraph sure. of his demise, because it's really a, a remarkable final scene for a protagonist of a book. I can think of no other book where the central character is disposed of in quite this way. So I'm going to read the last paragraph we have about Lester Ballard. Uh, you sort of gave us some of, of what happens here. His body was shipped to the state medical school. So this is after, I'm sorry, this is after he had died in the state hospital and he's been moved. His body was shipped to the state medical school at Memphis. There in a basement room, he was preserved with formalin and wheeled forth to take his place with other deceased persons newly arrived. He was laid out on a slab and flayed, eviscerated, dissected. His head was sawed open and the brains removed. His muscles were stripped from his bones. His heart was taken out. His entrails were hauled forth and delineated. And the four young students who bent over him like those heruspices of old perhaps saw monsters worse to come in their configurations. At the end of three months when the class was closed, Ballard was scraped from the table into a plastic bag and taken with others of his kind to the cemetery outside the city and there interred. A minister from the school read a simple service. Mm. So there's a bunch of um, fascinating stuff in there. One is, like you said, we get this bird's eye view and this very detached description of what's happening to his body. It's it's like where he ceases to become a person and he becomes a thing, which has always been a tension in the book. But I'm interested in that phrase uh, where the four young students are described as being like those heruspices of old. And heruspices were minor Roman priests who, at least I think what he's referring to here, that used divination through animal entrails. So reading the future, reading uh, sort of unknown um, stuff through entrails. You know, he's obviously playing on this metaphor, but if we think about that in terms of Lester, I think one of the things that this scene shows us is the way that people want to understand Lester. They want to understand how he became the way he did. Mm. They're not literally looking for that in this autopsy. They're practicing as medical students, but this idea of, can we dissect what is wrong Mm. with Lester? Is it in his brain? Is it in his heart? Is it, you know, and that kind of stuff, is it in his entrails? And in that way, that sort of sounds not that different from doing some of the same stuff as, as those first person stories that are telling sort of mythological tales about him. Yes. It's how do we, understand them, but then understanding them sort of put them in and understand, well, put them in a comprehensible framework um, that makes sense to, to what he's doing here in our community, those sort of things. But then just the final thing of 
Bal- I like the fact that he still keeps his name there, even when he's just pieces of. Yes. He didn't call it the corpse or the cadaver. No, Ballard was scraped from the table into a plastic bag and taking with others of his kind to the cemetery. Even that idea of others of his kind sort of suggests the people who don't have a place in society, the people who are. Yeah. It's very dehumanizing. Yeah. Homeless and who are offered up by the state. I imagine, you know, not by their families for uh, medical school students to practice on them. I think we've we've covered Child of God pretty thoroughly, Bill, and I think we we can now scrape it off the table. <laughs> and when you came on before to talk about the Southern Gothic and grotesque, you Child of God was the one you listed as your favorite novel. So, do you have a second choice for favorite novels? We always ask the guests on the podcast. Well, I'm tempted to say Sutri, but in terms of our conversation now, maybe I will say. The Road, because The Road sort of feels like an inside-out version of Child of God in some ways to me, as uh, hard as that is to see from one side. I mean, on one hand, both of them are accusation have received accusations of being sentimental or going soft. So some McCarthy purists didn't like The Road because it was too tender, too soft. Um, We see some of the claims of sentimentality. Just, just not enough God. dead babies in the road for those people. <laughs> exactly. Um, although there's some, you know, there are yeah, some. Yeah, for sure. And, but I think there's also something in the style that um, is sort of similar and that I really like about the road. Um, I've written elsewhere that in the road, you know, he has all these little short, brief paragraphs that are separated by a lot of white space. And, you know, at some points you can have five separate paragraphs or I mean five paragraphs back to back that have separate tones, moods, narrative measure registers and plots. So it's, it almost becomes like these brief and intense epigrams, you know, almost like thematically linked haiku or something like that. And I think in some ways, child of God sort of functions that way a little bit too, where we trying to figure out how these other parts of the book fit into the central narrative plot. And so the way it seems to me like an inside out version of child of God is that, uh, in the road, community and meaning become possible in the worst of situations. Child of God, there's a tenderness of language that seems out of place in the narration of such a brutal plot. Um, but in the road, family tenderness and the possibilities for community and home emerge even as our home of the planet is seemingly dissolved, and most communities are corrupt there. So it's, it has a, a thing about the need for home family and community that is in some ways similar to Lester. You know, there's the coexistence of the tragedy of the plot, which is never discounted um, with the power of love and commitment, even if we feel that this isn't sustainable. So even if we don't believe there's a happy ending, which there's probably not, that doesn't really rob that. So, I, I mean, I might just end by saying Lester was isolated without family and community, and the road is about the value of these things, even at the attempt of survival when there really is no community. That's really fascinating. I hadn't thought of that, although the more I look at the road in the context of all the earlier books, the more I see scenes being repeated in new ways. And of course it is, if we believe 
Wes Morgan, and I kind of do, although I'm not sure he gets all parts of the journey right. It definitely picks up in Tennessee and and heads from there. Yep. And so we're we're back to Tennessee again in that in that final novel of McCarthy's. Yeah, I think it's pretty indisputable that he goes across the river in Knoxville and then through the Smoky Mountains. Right. Then yeah, after that it gets a little bit right fuzzier. Um, yeah. Thanks again to today's guest, Bill Hardwick, Associate Professor of English at University of Tennessee. His book, Upon Provincialism, Southern Literature and National Periodical Culture from 1870 to 1900, was published by the University of Virginia Press in 2013. We're all awaiting completion of his book, How How Cormac Works, McCarthy, Language and Style. Check out his website, Literary Knox. That's www.literaryknox.com. To learn about the rich literary history of Knoxville, Tennessee, where Bill Hardwick lives and works. Thanks again, Bill. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, produced the music for Reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society, which is a downright dirty shame. Download and follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're agreeable, it'll help us if you provide favorable reviews on these platforms. To contact us, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com as we are quite thoroughly modern and social. Seek us out on Twitter and Facebook.